If you would, um, probably open your Bibles to a lot of places, go and hit a few places, but for starters, we'll be in Matthew, uh, Matthew's Gospel. Uh, the title of this message, we're in our series, Gospel Witness, uh, the, the very reason for our existence. In other words, why do we exist as a church? It's so that we might be a witness in this world, a light shining in a bright place. And so we've, we've gone over our, our gospel, uh, our missional priorities, and we'll talk about those in a minute. But as we talk about uh, gospel witness, we want to focus in on a very important question, which is what is the gospel? So let's read Matthew, beginning in uh, chapter 4, verse 23. We'll read three different verses from Matthew's gospel as a starting point this morning. But Matthew 4, 23, we read the following. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then in chapter 9, verse 35, uh, we read virtually the same thing. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And then in Matthew 24, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, teach us by your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts, our minds, and most importantly, Lord, help us to put these things into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sorry, I realize it's baseball season, or it's just about to be baseball season, and, and being the baseball fan that I am, I, I, I grieve that I have to bring you a football illustration. But it's the perfect illustration. I, I texted John Stuper on Friday and said, hey, you don't happen to have a baseball equivalent of, and then referred to this story. He couldn't come up with one. So there you go. In December 1960, the Green Bay Packers made it all the way to the NFL championship game, only to lose in the last minutes of the game to the Philadelphia Eagles. Of course, this was pre-Super Bowl, so, you know. They were the second best team in the league. So in July 1961, when the team gathered for their first day of training camp, and Coach Lombardi walked to the front of the meeting room with a football under his arm, no one expected what came next. Holding that football in front of them, he began their 1961 season saying, Gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> he had... He then had them all open to the front page of their playbooks and began going over blocking, tackling, throwing, and catching. In other words, back to the basics. Now, you might not assume that having come in second place, being the second best team, that you needed to go all the way back to this is a football. But he seemed to think they did. That year they won the championship game against the New York Giants, much to my father's chagrin, 38 to nothing. There are two things which the church cannot lose sight of. The gospel. The football that we want to hold up today is the gospel. This is the gospel. It cannot be assumed, and I think it is far less understood than we suspect. And the second is a disciple. 
Almost every church claims to be a disciple-making church, and we each bring our own definition to the cliché about what that even means. And until we define it, it isn't anything more than a cliché. These two questions, what is the gospel and what is a disciple, are woven together in such, such that we can't know what a disciple is without knowing what the gospel is. It starts with the gospel. So, back to our analogy. The gospel is the football and the disciples are the players. The players must understand that football well, but they also must understand what they are to do with it, which is the disciples' equivalent to blocking, tackling, throwing, and catching. What are our missional priorities? What are, let's, let's hear our missional priorities. We've been talking about them since January. Gospel culture, okay. What else? Gospel formation. Gospel mercy. Gospel unity and gospel outreach, okay. And we've talked about what each of those are. And all of those together make up our gospel witness. But if we don't know what the gospel is, we're going to miss the boat. So we need to get a clear handle on what the gospel is. Um, to ask what is the gospel is the same as what is the gospel of the kingdom. They're, they're one and the same thing. In the first century, gospels were always about kings and kingdoms. So to say the gospel of the kingdom, or just to say the gospel, is in their mind the same thing, because it is always of a kingdom or a king. We often hear that gospel means good news, and I mean, in some sense it does. It's euangelion, so it's a compound word, you, the prefix, means good, and angelion means proclamation. So it's the good proclamation. But to take the two parts of a compound word and define their meanings doesn't always give you the same thing. Like, take for instance, pineapple. Or earwig. Hairy sort of thing you put on... I mean. You, you can't really do that with compound words. And so one has to look at how was that word used? What did it mean in the context in with it, which it was used? And, of course, pineapple is referring to something altogether different. And, and earwig as well. And the same goes with gospel. It certainly was good news, but it was a particular kind of good news. It meant, in the first century, the proclamation of a new ruler, a king, who would bring about a changed, or we might say a better way of life. A fuller definition, we could say a, a gospel was news of a divine ruler's birth, coming of age, or enthronement. And also his speeches, decrees, and acts are glad tidings which bring fulfillment to the longings of the world for justice and peace. So there was a gospel of Augustus Caesar. There were gospels of all their emperors. Why? Because they proclaimed the reign of those emperors and the good things that they would bring about. And so when we read the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's talking about His coming to reign as King and His kingdom and the way of life within His kingdom. All of that's wrapped up in the gospel. In fact, our foundations class, we had a whole, this, this whole introduction was a whole class there to really walk through the the particulars of that. And so they, they got a head start on t today's message. So, uh, But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Gospels. Okay? 
they proclaim Christ's birth, his enthronement, his speeches, his decrees, his acts, which bring about fulfillment to the longings of the world for justice and peace. Uh, John and Jesus both came announcing the kingdom of God is near. So today we're going to explore the answer to the question, what is the gospel? And while it's important to know the content of the message, the most important, most important is to know the claim that that message makes on our life. To know the content without responding to the claim is somewhat useless. So we have to know what claim it is making on our lives, which gets to the question of what is a disciple. So we're going to explore this theme under three headings. The promised kingdom, the provisional kingdom, and speculating on the kingdom. The promised kingdom, the provisional kingdom, and speculating on the kingdom. Um, So let's begin with the first one, the promised kingdom. Gospels generally claim that there were promises in advance of this king's coming, but we happen to know there were with Jesus because, of course, they were written down and kept as scripture in the, in the, uh, by Israel throughout the centuries that led up to the coming of Christ. And Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. He writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, or we could say King Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel... He promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scripture regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Now there's a kingdom statement, right? David was the king of Israel. There was a promised coming king who would be a descendant of David. So as to his earthly life, he was a descendant of David. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The first thing to notice about the gospel, which Paul proclaimed, is that it was promised beforehand. It was promised beforehand. There was a gospel in advance. There was a proclamation that came before the event. We call that a promise. There's a proclamation that came before. This is what will happen. We we all know what political promises are. Every election cycle here in the U.S., promises of a better kingdom are made. A more just, more fair kingdom. Each party plies its wares to its voter base, trying to motivate them to get to the polls. Most tend to believe the promises that their political party makes and disbelieve, of course, those of the opposing party. That's just what we do. And every election cycle, we are disappointed. The Old Testament is filled with political promises for a better kingdom. Some of these promises are explicit and some more implicit or hidden. No doubt that Isaiah has the greatest clarity on what this promised king and kingdom would look like. So Isaiah almost looks like he's describing it while it's happening. Sometimes the details are so uh, clear. It's quite amazing. And we read this in Isaiah. You're probably familiar with it because it's on Christmas cards. But for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. It's promised beforehand. This is in Isaiah, written some 700 years prior to the coming of Christ. He, he, he was promised to come with this, this child to come, and, and there would be this kingdom of God, and it's described with how it would be. A kingdom with great peace, with no end and justice. Something never achieved in this world, it seems, but always longed for in human history. Justice. There's a great difference between the promises of the gospel and those of a politician. The promises of the gospel depend on God's integrity, not the politician's integrity. Thanks be to God. The second thing we notice there from Paul in Romans 1 is that the gospel is regarding God's Son. You may be familiar with the second psalm, which begins, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, or in other words, against His king. Anointed one was an anointed king, which is why Christ is a reference to His kingship. Well, that's followed a few verses later where we read, I have installed my king. This is Yahweh speaking. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. I have become your father. I have become your father. It's a blatant reference to a divine king. God is saying, you are my son. I have become your father. See, Son of God was not a unique title for Jesus. Augustus Caesar claimed to be a son of God, which indicated that he was not only king, but he was divine. He was God. But Jesus is not a son of God, like all the other rulers of that time would have claimed. He's the son of the God, which is an altogether different claim, to be sure. But this To say that he's God's son is to say that he is king as well. Though Paul acknowledges that as to his earthly nature, Jesus was David's son, he points to the greater fact that he's God's son, he's a divine king. He's not only king over Israel, he's king over everything in heaven and on earth. He's more than king over Israel. And he was declared to be so by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's a pretty bold statement, right? Here, here's how we're going to say that he is my son. I will raise him from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. You could read it this way. King Jesus, our Lord. Paul preached the gospel of the kingdom. He proclaimed Christ's reign. But there's a very real sense in which this once promised kingdom is now a provisional kingdom. And this is where the gospel, um, what the gospel is, has implications for what a disciple is. So, first, we're going to see in in, in this provisional kingdom story, we're going to look at what the gospel is, but then we're going to look at what a disciple is from it in our third point as well. And and that we're going to read from Luke 19 here in a moment, under the heading, The Provisional Kingdom. The American Revolution lasted from about 1775 to late 1783, so about eight years, just short of that, I think. 
At no time during the war did more than 45% of the colonists support the war. Okay? Never had a majority of people supporting the war. And a third of the colonists fought for the British. Many colonists switched sides regularly depending on who was winning. Just hedging their bets, you know. The most humorous example of this is the inn, in which sat on what is now Route 1 in New Jersey. Every morning at, and at different intervals throughout the day, the innkeeper would send a servant out to look down the road and see if an army was coming, and if an army was coming, which colors they were bearing, and they would raise a flag of whichever one it was. If it's the, the, the colonists, they'd you know, raise the, the, the flag for the colonists. If it was uh, the British, they'd raise a flag for that. That way they wouldn't burn down his inn. His loyalty was simply to himself and his business. He wasn't really for one or the other uh, of those dominions. What made it the revolution, the bloodiest war, at least as a percentage in American history, is that it was a civil war, but not by region. It wasn't like us in this region fighting you over in there in that region. It was man against man, neighbor against neighbor. Every other house could be pulling for a different winner in this thing. So people were killing each other uh, in, in the process. Um, during the war and following it for six more years, a provisional government existed. George Washington wasn't president until 1789. The Continental Congress was in charge during those 14 years. It was a provisional government which awaited the establishment of the full reign of the new government, assuming that they won. (laughs) There's a big assumption there, right? If they lost, well, not so much. But assuming they won, that, 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 that's going to be the a full reign of the new government that they're going to bring in. The U.S. government during that time was already, but not yet. Real, but not fully manifest. People like the innkeeper lived according to the rules of the government they believed would win in the moment. You know, whatever, whatever works for them. They lived by faith, you could say, in one government or another. Or as the innkeeper vacillated back and forth. So with that in mind, let's read the parable from Luke 19, beginning in verse 11. While they were listening to this, which the this that they were listening to was Jesus describing what had just happened with Zacchaeus. The whole event of Zacchaeus had happened. Jesus declaring salvation had come to his house. We'll get back to that. But as they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. The people are thinking, oh, wow, this is Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's going to establish his throne. He's going to reign. Everything's going to be set right. Rome is out. Uh, He's in, right? I mean, it's all going to be good. So he said, well, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king. And then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, um, until I come back. But but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because 
You have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. I've got a couple of names for this parable. Let's suggest right now the parable of the provisional king. Okay? It's always important not to overinterpret a parable. Not everything needs to have an equivalent. The main point is stated up front. Those who thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once needed to understand something else about this kingdom. Okay. And this parable is not about investing and making a profit so that God will reward you for being a good capitalist. That is not the point. It's how we tend to read it because we are in a capitalistic society. That's how we tend to read it. But that's not how they would have read it or heard it as they did. It's about how we live here and now in the already, not yet. Okay? How we live. It's about what a disciple is. We'll get to that. Point three. Okay? But we have to first understand about this provisional king. The parable was actually a story very familiar to them. As familiar to them as an election is to us. You know, as presidential candidates line up for 2024, others will line up with support and donations in hope for a future ambassadorship or cabinet positions or laws made in their favor. The candidates will also have an enemies list, the people that didn't support them. And that doesn't usually go well for them. Of course, they don't get killed most of the time in our country, but there are still enemies lists out there. For Jesus' audience, this parable is an oft-repeated scene. Herod the Great had made the long trip to Rome in 40 B.C. to be appointed king and returned successfully. His three sons also made such a trip in 4 B.C., about the time of Christ's birth, in which an embassy of 50 followed to argue against the rule of one of them because of his cruelty. So somebody's going behind him, he's going, oh, make me king. And one's going behind him, going, no, don't make him king. Man, he's a jerk, he's too cruel. He's, not, he's going to create trouble in your kingdom. And, and so th- th- those things happen. The political allies of the one who is going on the long journey are rewarded handsomely if the person who went on the journey returns successfully. If the would-be king fails... The allies lose a lot. You must determine where your allegiance lies and go all in. The risk for every citizen is how to set themselves up for the future. Let me say that again. The risk for every citizen is how to set themselves up for the future. So they're going to they're gonna speculate on one rule or another. They have choices to make, and that's what they're going to do. 
the time when the would-be king is traveling, he's gone on a long journey to be made king, and he's going to come back as king. That time is a time of risk. Okay? It's a time of risk. That is now for us. Following Jesus' ascension to reign over everything and his return after his last enemy has uh, been put underfoot, death itself. It is a risk because everything around us promises peace, joy, and justice if we make money, self, and sex our high priorities. While the provisional, the already not yet king, says generosity, others, and self-sacrifice are the currency of the new kingdom. Which are you going to believe? Which are you going to believe? His servants who risk everything, banking on his return as king, will be rewarded. But if a servant does like that innkeeper in the American Revolution, that guy, (laughs) hedging his bets, he's like the guy who buried what he was given, waiting to see what would happen. The way we put money the parable calls it, to work, which, by the way, isn't money at all, but the currency of the new king's kingdom. The way we put it to work is to live under the rule of the new king. In other words, in loyalty to his laws and his economy, which, in this case, if the new king is Jesus, that law, those laws and economy involves forgiving debts, giving to the one who asks, and other forms of generosity. So the gospel, we could say, is the news that Jesus is the provisional king and will return to rule fully over his kingdom. He will one day reign in full, but he is provisionally the king now. And, and, and this leads to the second and final point for, second point of the parable, but the final point for our message. And here we want to specifically tie the gospel to what it means to be disciples. We want to tie those things together. So that's our third point, speculating on the kingdom. So the promised kingdom, the provisional king, and speculating on the kingdom. Now I want to just point out, for those that like a good alliteration, my alliteration carries. Because even though speculating starts with an S, the primary consonant sound is the P. So it is speculating on the kingdom. Okay, Um, first, the gospel is the proclamation of a new king. Jesus, who promises a kingdom of peace, justice, joy, and much more. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. We say it a number of ways, and those are all ways of saying the same thing. The way into this kingdom is the forgiving grace of Christ. The proof of our loyalty or faith is evidenced in how we live. Which system of laws and ways of life are we living under? We we are called to make disciples, so it's important to know what a disciple is. A disciple is not someone with certain study habits, though they may well have them, but that's not what makes a disciple. A disciple is not someone who knows a certain volume of doctrine, though they certainly might know a certain volume of doctrine or not. Because that's not what makes one a disciple. A disciple isn't even someone who has committed to learning all those things. That's not a disciple. A disciple lives according to the ways of the provisional kingdom while still in the not yet world that functions according to another set of rules. 
Jesus is the one going away to be appointed king and is coming back as king. Disciples are those who live accordingly. Their loyalty and allegiance is to that kingdom and not the one which appears to be ruling now. A disciple is someone who has begun living under the commands of our new king, which is why the description of a disciple includes baptism, death to the old kingdom and resurrection into a new, and teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. A disciple is being formed into the image of Christ. A disciple is somebody who is setting out to obey the commands of of Jesus. We simply put, we could say a disciple is someone who is learning to live in Jesus' ways. So if we're going to go make disciples, we're going to teach them to live in Jesus' ways, right? We're going to help them live in Jesus' ways. We're going to walk with them living in Jesus' ways. Now, of course, to do that, we should be what? Living in Jesus' ways, right? That's kind of the prerequisite um, for that. A disciple is someone who speculates on the new kingdom. So my other name for this parable is the parable of speculating on the kingdom. Because that's what these three that we read about, the, 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 the ten that servants were given these coins, that's what they are supposed to do is speculate positively on the kingdom. That it will succeed. That the one who left will return and be fully installed as king. You see, uh, uh, Stephen said this earlier, and I loved how you put it in your, your prayer, but we're not looking for an escape plan. Um, the, the reason the coming of the Lord is important to the believer is not because it gets us out of this mess, an escape plan. Nor is it because we need to know when He is coming, like somehow we need to know the day and plan accordingly. The reason the coming of the Lord is important is because when He returns as King, all the sacrifices we made while living in this not-yet world, as if He was King already, because He really is, will be rewarded. That's why we want Him to come back. Because He'll come back fully as King and He'll reward those who have been living according to His ways. On thesaurus.com, the first synonym suggested for speculation is belief. I thought that was interesting. We, we live by faith. In other words, we live by speculation that Christ is returning fully as king. And we should live our lives speculating accordingly, living accordingly. Of course, the speculator is a person who invests in stocks, property, or other ventures in hopes of making a profit. They invest in what they believe will work. So speculating fits. The scene with Zacchaeus illustrates perfectly the claim made on would-be disciples. It perfectly illustrates the point of the parable, the speculation required. There are two kings and kingdoms in the story of Zacchaeus. You know the story. Jesus is coming into town and Zacchaeus, well, he climbs the tree, but who was Zacchaeus? He was a... Tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. In fact, he was very wealthy. And what does he start doing? Well, he's returning tax monies that he had taken, or legally extorted, 
And also, he's taking legitimate tax monies that he had collected and giving them to the poor, half of it, and now living according to the economy of the new king. Jesus. He's giving his monies to the poor. That's Jesus' economy. This was a radical shift of allegiance. Once he's a tax collector, his distribution was to Rome. Now, he's taking what he'd collected, and he's distributing it to the poor, because that's what his new king says to do. Give, give, give. He was speculating that Christ's kingdom would outlast Caesar's. And lo and behold... He was publicly aligning himself with this new allegiance. But more than that, he was living according to the ways of the new kingdom and not the old kingdom. The old ways had gotten him rich, but he is forsaking those ways. He's entrusting his life, his well-being, his provision to the new king and his ways. What does it mean to speculate on the new kingdom? To put this money to work while I go and come back. What does it look like to put it to work? You know, here. Here's 10 grand. Go start a business in the public square in my name while I am gone. Run it according to how things work in my kingdom. Not how they work in Rome. According to verse 14, this would mean publicly identifying with the king that everyone hates. Because it clearly says that they all hated him. The citizens hated him. So you're going to go publicly identify with the one that everyone hates. The citizens are trying to appeal that he's not made king. And if that is accepted, these guys lose. Or to interpret the parable, if Jesus does not return as king, those who speculate on his kingdom lose. They are, in the language of Paul, of all people most to be pitied. However, if the king returns as king, they are winners. Faith is risky. But so is rejecting the king. You're taking a risk either way. You've got to determine where your faith lies. After the king returns as king, he calls his servants together. Verse 15 explains, and as the the New American Standard Bible puts it more literally, quote, so that he might know what business they had done. So that he might know what business they had done. The question is not really about how profitable they were, but how willing to profess and live in allegiance to him publicly they were. That was the real issue at stake. Did they open business in his name and trade in his currency? Jesus' audience knew that if such a king were to return as king, he would reward loyal followers with cities, but he would also punish with death. And then you got this one guy of all the lame excuses. His last servant mentioned was like many would-be servants, professing faith. I'm a servant, but living as if they have no real confidence the king will succeed, uh, much like the innkeeper, right? Back and forth allegiance, whatever's working, whichever way the wind's blowing that day. He wasn't about to publicly identify with the king or trade in his currency before its certainty is known. There's too much risk involved. When the king returns successful, the servant has to make an excuse. Um, Because I knew, because I knew you were a hard man, he thinks it's a compliment. So I wanted to make sure I I had it for you, I, I buried it. 
The king sees through the lie, but wisely uses his own words against him. For even someone fearful of loss would be more than happy to earn interest with the bankers. He gets no reward. What we do matters. How we live matters. It reveals what kingdom we really believe in. It's not about keeping a certain set of rules. It's about living in allegiance to the king and how he says life is in his kingdom. Call them rules if you want, but that's what kings do. This is why the Sermon on the Mount was one of the most significant discipleship tools of the early church. It's the most significant discipleship tool of the early church. It describes how we should speculate on the kingdom. Because to live according to the Sermon on the Mount, you are speculating that the ways of this world aren't the answer and that the ways of the king are. But you lose big if that doesn't turn out to be true. So it's huge speculation, or we could call it faith, in Christ. The, the early church understood that they were building a new culture based on the teachings of their king, Jesus. The, the primary source for this new culture was for them the Sermon on the Mount, to which they paid great attention. In, in a summary of the formative practices of the early church, Alan Kreider in his book, Patient Furman, he lists 19 things that summarize the formative practices of the early church. And there are a number, I'm, I'm going to only cover, I think, nine of them here. There's ten that... Uh, I'm not covering, just to, to get to the point, though. Here are a few. Eating together. At Eucharist and other meals, Christians share the table as a family. Giving the kiss of peace. Christians bond together in love as equals. Memorizing text. The first text which they memorized, and this would have been required for baptism, it was in their catechizing to get ready for baptism, and so they were required to memorize, guess what? The Sermon on the Mount. Not because memorization of Scripture somehow makes them better disciples, but because the content of the Sermon on the Mount is what the King, how He calls us to live. Visiting the poor, the sick, the prisoners. Christians declare that people have dignity and that deeds matter. Exercising hospitality. Christians receive and feed visitors. Putting money in the collection box. Christians voluntarily contribute to the common fund, enacting and embodying the belief that poor people matter and that sharing is a fundamental value. Replenishing the stocks of food and clothing. Christians care for each other. Feeding needy people. Christians care for outsiders and enemies. Being willing to lose out in business, law, and verbal arguments. Christians exercise patience and do not litigate or coerce. They trust God. Wow. We could go on. And of course they talk about corporate formative practices, gathering and worshiping and various things. They're all part of it. But they took seriously that they were a part of a new kingdom. And they lived according to that new kingdom way. Do we publicly make ourselves known to be allies of the king in a climate of hatred for the king? Are we willing to lose out according to the economy of this age in order to be faithful to our king who will return ushering in a new age and reward those who have been living according to the rules of that new age? 
In closing, just a kind of a final thought here. Elizabeth Elliot. My wife read me this quote yesterday morning, and I said, okay, that, that's, that's good. I'm, I'm going to use that. Sometimes fear does not subside, and one must choose to do it afraid. Living in the ways of Christ will always have risk, and therefore, at least a tinge of fear. The question for us is, which king are we living for? Indecision is a decision, like the guy who buried it in the ground. There's no such thing as neutral. This parable of the provisional king, or the speculating uh, on the kingdom disciples, is the gospel in a capsule. Jesus came and then left on a journey through death, resurrection, ascension, and awaits until that day when the last enemy is put underfoot and he returns as a triumphant king. But in calling it the parable of speculating on the kingdom, it turns our focus from the gospel to how we must respond to it, to what it means to be a disciple, someone learning to live their lives in the new kingdom ways of Jesus. That's fundamentally what a disciple is, is somebody learning to live their lives in the new kingdom ways of Jesus. So if we're going to make disciples, while there may be a lot of things going into it, the tip of the arrow, the tip of the arrow is teaching people to live in the ways of our new king, Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we consider the gospel, the reality that we serve in in a great sense, a provisional king, and we await his return as a triumphant king to rule over everything. Lord, help us to live in such a way that we will be put in charge of cities. We don't know exactly what that looks like or what it will mean, but Lord, we want to live in such a way that we're rewarded for living according to your kingdom ways. And Zacchaeus shows us how that is done. He began to live in extravagant generosity. Quite the opposite of how he lived before. Amen.